Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. The world's motor industry is in the middle of a revolution. Driven by some brutal legislation, electric cars are displacing petrol and diesel and manufacturers are having to redesign their businesses almost from the ground up. Nowhere has this seismic shift been more apparent than in Britain, which is banning the sale of nearly all petrol and diesel cars in just seven years' time. The result has been to cut a swathe through the UK industry. Production has almost halved from its recent peak as plants have either closed or reduced to being suppliers of parts. Batteries... The key component of electric cars need expensive, large-scale factories near the assembly lines. The UK government has recently committed an unprecedented £500 million in subsidies to keep making Jaguar Land Rovers in Britain. New rules on origin are also threatening the valuable trade between the UK and the EU. Peter Wells is Professor of Business and Sustainability at Cardiff University's Centre for Automotive Industry Research. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. How have we got here, Peter, and what does the future look like? Well, two very trivial questions, just to start. (laughs) It's an interesting point in the history of the industry, there's no doubt about it, and indeed pretty well unprecedented and potentially cataclysmic, both for the industry in the United Kingdom and more widely. It really is that that bigger pivotal moment, I think. When we look at the the reasons for this kind of state of affairs emerging, of course, there are many different factors involved, but fundamentally, we've got the climate issues. Therefore, this is a problem not only facing the UK automotive industry, but also the industry worldwide. What we see going on around us now is a a real scramble for survival, really, by different parts of the industry, different companies in different parts of the world. In, In that scramble, I think it's fair to say, that the UK has fallen behind. You know, there's definitely a sense in which the UK industry, for one reason and another, is behind the pace compared with its major regional competitors in France, Germany, and so on, but also at a global scale, particularly, of course, behind the Chinese. When you say Britain is behind the pace, how much scope do we have for dictating to an industry which is essentially foreign-owned? The ownership issue is, of course, an important one when you you look at uh, how much room we have to manoeuvre, so to speak, with the automotive industry in the United Kingdom. You know, for a long time now, we've not really had one of those national champions or one or two companies that feel part of our national fabric. That's really ever since Nissan arrived um, under, of course, Margaret Thatcher and her government's regime. Um, We've seen that shift in emphasis away from protecting industry or protecting individual companies and towards facilitating markets, market access, trade, and primarily, of course, consumer choice. So we've ended up with an industry which is largely owned elsewhere, 
which largely exports to other markets and with our own market largely served by imports. So it's a rather unusual position and it does make it very difficult for the government to orchestrate a policy framework which integrates both the supply side and the demand side. When you say, Peter, that we've fallen behind or UK industry has fallen behind, can you expand on where you think that lag has formed and why it's happened? Well, I think that the primary concern at the moment, at least from an industry perspective, is that you know we don't have enough capacity to build batteries or indeed battery electric vehicles. And that's not just in the kind of current present tense. That's also looking forward into future development plans. If we look at, say, Germany, there's, there's more than 500 gigawatts of, of capacity for battery manufacturing either installed or planned in that country. And we we have a vanishingly small number compared to that. Less than 50 gigawatts is likely within the near future. When we look at the kind of product pipeline and we look at the, the kind of production lags involved in all of this, it means that other than Nissan producing in high volume up in the northeast of England, we won't have that capacity available until, well, the latter part of the 2020s. And that's really far too late. You know, other competitors are already coming in. And I particularly would highlight the fact that we're well behind the Chinese, who are beginning now to export vehicles back into Europe, either on their own terms or through being locations for other manufacturers such as Tesla, Volkswagen and so on. The UK industry is behind in a production sense, but has ironically has been quite well advanced in stimulating the market. And that, of course, has provided the opportunity for non-UK manufacturing to take advantage of the market conditions here in the UK. We have the worst of both worlds, really. The Chinese are undercutting the European manufacturers by a substantial margin. And the base of this, in my view is the cost of energy, because we are not going to be a low energy cost country for many years, if ever. Well, indeed, cost of energy is an important element in the production calculation, shall we say, the economic calculations, particularly, of course, for those battery packs. They are very energy intensive. And if you if you ever care to look at the original Tesla plant in the Nevada desert, it is festooned with solar panels. And one of the primary reasons for locating the plant there was indeed to to take advantage of the ability to generate the required electricity through their own solar systems. Now, here in the UK, yes, we do have electricity prices that are relatively high. That's a structural problem. It's not something that is unique to the automotive industry. But in a sense, this is slightly missing the point because many manufacturers elsewhere are already targeting the ambition of reaching zero carbon in terms of their manufacturing footprint, as well as in terms of the vehicles. And so, you know, companies like Volvo, like Volkswagen, like Tesla are fast already going much further down that road. We also have to be able to compete on those terms. And interestingly enough, you know, recently the French government said that they were interested in regulating market access into Europe based on the carbon emissions performance in manufacturing for the vehicles. <laughs> well, that's interesting. The interesting thing about that, of course, is that in European terms, nuclear is counted as zero carbon, yeah. whereas those Chinese cars are being built with electricity supplied from coal-fired power stations. The question of energy costs, I take your point. I can totally see why the French are very keen on uh, 
low carbon production with all their nuclear power with stations. All their nuclear power stations. Yeah. I, I know that there are some advantages or concessions that are given to German manufacturers, but German electricity costs or energy costs are, are no cheaper than those in the UK. So is it the case that Britain is lagging because energy costs are high relative to the rest of, for example, Europe? Or is it just that we haven't got our act together in terms of planning what we're going to do next in terms of providing the capacity to build electric vehicles? Take yourself back a bit and, you know, you remember it was always said that the British disease, so to speak, was labour, was the labour problems, problems with organised trade unions, problems with wildcat disputes and so on and so on. And that was clearly the case when Nissan arrived and Margaret Thatcher was orchestrating this sort of restructuring of the relationship between organised labour and government. What we've seen since then is that, in fact, within the car industry at least, workers have worked under many different sorts of managerial regime. With the Nissan, the Japanese system, we've had BMW, you know, we've had all sorts of people coming in with all sorts of ideas about how workers should work, how they should be organised and so on. And in all of that, I think it's fair to say that the workforce has shown itself to be extremely adaptable. Which brings us back to the fundamental question then, why has the performance not been as it could be? And I think you're left with two answers. One is investment. In other words, you know, what you see in the German industry case is very high levels of continuing investment in new equipment and manufacturing capabilities, which drives up labour productivity in those factories. And the other is government policy. And I think there we what we've seen is this very erratic approach to the industry, a very haphazard approach, not helped, I have to say, by Brexit. And complicated further by the difficulty, I think, that conservative governments have had in orchestrating a sort of state approach to the resolving the issues facing industry in general and the automotive industry in particular. The policy's essentially been a series of headline grabbing rather than any intelligent assessment of how these targets can ever be met. Yeah, well, of course, and rather than comparing with Germany, compare, compare with France. And what we see there is, firstly, very high-level involvement. You know, Macron himself has been closely involved in talking to those incoming investing businesses, orchestrating their response, creating this kind of technopole concept in northern France, integrating many different aspects of electric vehicle production, and not only just production, but also thinking about recycling and, and, and the, the entire kind of life cycle approach to building cars. So they are light years ahead in a policy sense compared to us just throwing some short-term money at a problem. Do you think that that particular huge subsidy... That's the J is- JLR one. Jaguar Land Rover plant, is that right? Yeah. Do you think that that is a subsidy which is a good use of half a billion pounds? The amount of subsidy hasn't yet been confirmed. I have to say that what's going on across Europe at the moment is a sort of subsidy war in in the sense that governments, including the French, as I've just mentioned, German industry and so on, almost every time one of these new battery manufacturing facilities is being put in place anywhere across Europe, there are significant subsidies involved in the region of, let's say, 20% of the investment cost. 
Now, this has got to be a major concern, I think, not just for the individual cases, but it looked at in the macro by 2030, we actually could be experiencing an overcapacity of battery manufacturing capabilities across Europe. So that's the first problem. Second problem is that it ties governments as well as companies into this kind of continuation of this existing model of automobile manufacturing and use. And I I have real concerns about that model. We are currently focused on building very large, very heavy and very expensive vehicles at huge resource cost. Those resources are increasingly scarce. People focus, of course, on on the cobalt and, and some of the related materials, but also the rare earths needed for those motors inside those vehicles. They are also very scarce and needed in other applications, such as wind turbines. And defence. We don't have that integrated vision of what we're trying to achieve as a society with what will be an increasingly scarce resource base. But as you say, the UK industry over many years since the sort of decline of British Leyland has, apart from, I suppose, Nissan being one example, largely moved away from volume manufacturing towards these expensive, high-end luxury vehicles like Jaguars, Land Rovers and Rolls Royces. There's always going to be a space in the world for something like Rolls Royce, Bentley. Actually, they're really well suited to be electric cars. The cost isn't particularly a, a problem in those kind of vehicles. So I don't see that end of the market being particularly problematic. Mm. The problem really is in that kind of centre ground. You know, this has been a long ongoing process. Even with Nissan, now they shifted Micra into India and you know, Micra sold here in the UK now are built in India because they felt they could make more money doing something in, in the kind of cash guy size. I think it has been a clear problem, and I don't see that we have any manufacturer at present willing and able to embrace that. If you were advising the government now to try to find ways out of this hole, what would you say to them? Well, I think firstly, the government at the moment is starting from the wrong end. It's starting from the end of, of manufacturing, and, and we've been doing that for far too long. We, we, we've not really thought enough about what is the purpose and role of vehicles within our lives, within our economy, you know, in terms of our environmental impact. I would start at the other end and think about what can we do to actually to reduce the need for vehicles in general and, and particularly for these very large, heavy, expensive vehicles and create the conditions for alternatives to that. And we have to do something to capture more of that value that could be there if we created the right conditions for the you know, a much smaller urban appropriate vehicles and save those big, heavy, expensive ones for the, for the kind of trips for which they are best suited, which is to say, you know, those long range motorway style long long distance journeys that's your modest little prospectus is it yeah modest yeah because well the thing is like i said at the start no i do feel that where we are to a fairly kind of existential moment here now don't forget over this last summer we have seen some extraordinary consequences of climate change we are therefore faced with a, a very powerful set of choices which are increasingly very difficult to get away from do you think that in this race to net zero, we can possibly do it with bearable stroke cheaper energy costs? Because I think that energy costs are absolutely are absolutely at the root of all this. And the price of wind power is not going down. It's actually going up. And the scope for 
substitution of oil is extremely limited. Do you think we have any reasonable prospect of being able to power our economy and our cars on fuel which is affordable? Obviously, energy is, is in the end, the key to all of this. You're right. The real risk here, I think, is that if we simply allow energy costs to rise, then there's going to be a lot of people who will not be able to afford to heat their homes or to drive their cars or whatever it may be. So I think that simply letting go of energy prices in that sense is is itself extremely problematic and risky. However, you know, some interesting examples have happened in our in our history. You know, we've had COVID where huge behavioural changes occurred around, you know, obviously, what was a very important issue and a very important problem. And it showed you that behaviour change can achieve significant shifts in our consumption patterns and so on. But also, go further back. And you may recall, as I did in, for my youth, you know, the miners' strikes and, and the, the, the energy cuts at those times. And we had a role. I'm afraid I, I'm a lot older than you are, Peter, so I can remember all this. <laughs> well, well, you will remember we had a, a kind of rolling sequence of blackouts around the country and where we were all being exhorted by the then Central Electricity Generating Board to, quote, save it. And guess what? We did. And so much so that afterwards, the CEGB and, and its related distribution entities had to try to persuade us to start consuming again. You know, we have simply taken the approach of essentially predict and provide. We predict these consumption levels with energy, and then we try to provide for them. We're not thinking it about in terms of the ability to create energy for a given level of consumption. Therefore, the focus has to be on, yes, keeping those prices from going too high, but also on really, really, really addressing this issue of consumption. What are we doing to consume so much more electricity? And what can we do about that? I just wanted to ask, Peter, what do you think will be the impact of this legislation in 2030 to stop selling new petrol, diesel cars? Well, I think, first of all, there's going to be quite a lot of confusion in the market because of the kind of hybrid clause, which makes life difficult now that you can still be able to sell a petrol and diesel vehicle if it's hybrid and under some terms, which are a little bit unspecific at the moment. But also, I think already we're beginning to see the reaction in the market. In other words, as people begin to understand that this deadline is looming, Mm. there will be a growing reticence for purchasing of existing kind of petrol and diesel models in the market. Just as vehicle manufacturers have already retrenched on their development programs for diesel and are likely to do so for petrol, so they're cutting back on the models available and consumers are beginning to become wary about buying those vehicles. And by 2030, there'll be a fairly substantial used market for electric vehicles. I've bought two used electric cars uh, so far. I'll probably have another couple by the end of this time period. It's beginning to happen. Do you think that we've gone about creating the infrastructure in the right way? One thing which does strike me is we've sort of copied the model of the petrol station with the electric recharging stop. But obviously the model is imperfect because you need to spend a lot longer at a pump if you're putting electricity into your car rather than petrol. Surely we should think about sort of things where if you're going to have electric vehicles with batteries that there should be a way of replacing the battery in a car and charging it centrally rather than having everyone with their own little battery beetling around. 
Or is that a stupid idea? It is. <laughs> well, not a stupid idea at all. Yeah, in fact, uh, you'll much. soon be able to... <laughs> that's all right. It is a stupid idea. <laughs> you'll soon be able to buy a car that does that because Neo, a Chinese company, are exporting into the, into the UK not too distant future, and they will come with their battery swap stations. In China, again, there are some independent companies like some of the battery manufacturers who are currently also pursuing this uh, battery swap concept. And in many ways, it makes perfect sense. Chinese famously There was a business um, more than 10 years ago now called Better Place, which attempted to set up as an independent battery swap business. Right. It had big investments. It had over a billion pounds of funding from various sources, and they went spectacularly wrong. The problem for the, for the battery swap prop- proposition was they could not get all the vehicle manufacturers to agree on a simple kind of uniform battery size, you know, like having AA batteries to put inside a, a children's toy. You know, if all the manufacturers had the same basic format of battery, could be dropped out easily, it could be used universally, etc., etc., then this would be a lot simpler, a lot quicker, and it would make a lot more sense. Makes cars cheaper too. Yeah, makes theory. cars cheaper. It uh, means battery upgrades are super really simple. stupid, basically. I think, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, this uh, this brave new world that you're uh, you're describing for us. I'm afraid I do not see it. I see misery and increasing harassment and taxation of those of us who have the temerity to drive an internal combustion engine car, because the cost of batteries is not going to continue to come down the cost of wind power is not going to continue to come down it's actually going up quite dramatically at the moment and i think that the key to all this as i said earlier is energy costs and i cannot see anything in particularly western europe which is remotely comparable to the sort of cost of energy that the chinese are going to be paying and are car manufacturing business such as it is today will disappear to a sort of rump of one or two luxury manufacturers and with a bit of luck nissan but i think all the rest are doomed <laughs> peter do you want to come back on that there? i've now got the full manifesto from neil of yeah, yeah that, that's excellent gloom and doom i mean i, I thought i was fairly <laughs> pessimistic but um yeah you've done very well there <laughs> Again, there is a lot in what you say. Yes, it's it's clearly the case that if you continue to insist on wanting to use your petrol or diesel car, you will find it's less and less useful. You will be not allowed into various areas of the country increasingly in the future, especially our urban areas. You will find it more difficult to find fuel. You will pay more in tax. It's going to be much more difficult. In the end, it will be something of the past. Here in the UK, we celebrate our past. We, in the UK, has more car enthusiast clubs than the rest of Europe combined. It's a fantastic place if you're in car enthusiast. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, so so you know, there's a place for you. Don't you worry. Uh, you can gather in a field with like-minded <laughs> <Mr>. individuals <laughs> and lie under the cars. Poop, yes. poop. <laughs> for, for, for the kind of mainstream day-to-day business of driving about the place yeah it's going to go electric there'll be a lot of chinese influence i do think that more will come out of the uk again you know if you think back to when kind of the british leyland combine started to fall apart and had all those problems with rover and then ford started reducing investments and so on and what you find happening there is that the people of course 
stay. And those people are full of ideas, full of knowledge, full of skills, which they then take and, and do interesting things with. That's one of the reasons why we have such a strong motorsport industry, is that we've got people who have been through that process, got all that talent, and then start to apply it in different ways. And I, I think there's still a lot of scope for, for innovation in this sector, not just in the hard, metally bits of cars, but in the software, new service models, new ways of um, you know, providing mobility and so on. That's going to be it's going to be a really dynamic and innovative. Whilst you know, yes, that rump of kind of petrol and diesel owners and users will slowly but surely decline. Rump being the <laughs> rump operative being word, yeah. quite. <laughs> but fortunately, I don't think it'll apply to me because by the time the rump is, is well and truly cooked, I shall be under the ground. That was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.